Today's scripture reading comes from the books of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verses 17 through 21, and Psalm 68, verses 1 through 6. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 21. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Psalm 68, verse 1 through 6. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before a fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up his song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. This is the word of God. We continue in our series on biblical justice. And... Um, these, these are not easy messages to teach. Uh, there's a lot of content, and I'm not going to go through some long <laughs> review like I did last time, and you guys are like, okay, good, <laughs> okay? Um, but uh, in the first part of my message, I, I, I do want to kind of try to tie some of it together. So last week, last week I, uh, I talked, I just want to just give you one little portion of review from last week. I talked about, I gave you a message called true justice, not, you know, um, secular social justice, true justice, not secular social justice. And so, um, and in there, I wanted to tell you that really justice is, is, as I've been telling you, it is a manifestation. It's really ultimately justice is, is an attribute of God's character. And ultimately, justice is a subset of his love for persons. That's what I wanted to say. Justice is an expression of God's love for persons. And in our day, we have this abstract secular idea. We don't have a person. There's, we just think that, you know, they're just human beings. We all live together. And then we have this thing called justice, and only we get to define it. There's nobody above us who's wiser than us, greater than us, whose wisdom is above all times and all places and all cultures, and then gets to shape us. And so all we just get is just human minds, small human minds. And then what we do is we fight over the fact that it, oftentimes somebody always has something more than us. Some, some group has more than us. And some group gets in power and, and then makes it unfair and does exclusions and exploitations. And of course, that's true. But mostly what we tend to feel that is that there has to be justice is ultimately about fairness. And one of the points I really wanted to get across to you is justice actually is not about fairness. 
I know that sounds really crazy. From a secular point of view, that's just like, what, what are you talking about? And one of the points I said last week is justice is better than fairness. Because justice is actually about love. Justice is about divine love for persons. And I want to just start, start here. Any of you who are, you know, we're going to start going into this issue of how God is a father to the fatherless today. And this is a great way of starting to think, how does a father think about his children? And when a father thinks about his children, I don't, you know, like I'm a father, and let me tell you, I don't walk home and think, let me think about justice. Okay? Now, um, you, you, you do have to have some understanding that you can't be, like, extremely unfair. Okay? Otherwise, your kids will just go like, what, what's going on? It's craziness. But um, I don't think any wise father really worries fundamentally about fairness. I don't think, if you're, if you're constantly thinking about fairness, you're not actually thinking like a father. You're really thinking more like a judge. The hat you have on your head is there's rules. There's some kind of abstract rules. I have to apply the rules to all my kids because, you know, I'm the leader of my kids. And then we're going to have fairness and that will be justice, right? Do, do you think like that? Any of you who are dads here? Did your dad ever think this way? And I hope they didn't. Because I think a good father is what I want to say is better than fair. <laughs> better than fair. And so, if you have one child who loves art, but the other child loves athletics, are you going to be fair and make them both do athletics and art? Wait a second. What if art lessons cost more than athletics? So, we have to spend the exact same amount of money so then there'll be fairness and justice? That doesn't make sense. What if one child is more of an extrovert and one child is an introvert? What if one child is prone toward depression? But one child is just, it seems like, comes out of the womb, ready to take on the world with all confidence. If one child was prone toward discouragement and depression, as a father, shouldn't you spend more time with that child? So let's just get fair. Let's be fair, and I'm going to spend... More time, equal, even Stephen, equal time with all children. And what if the child that was just born to rule the world, to take on the world, said, Dad, how come it seems unfair? It seems unfair. You, you spend more time, you know, with my little brother than with me. You say, son, can't you see? He's more prone toward sadness. And he's more encouragement. He needs more of my time. It's not because I love you less. Of course not. Of course not. You hear what I'm saying? Love is better than fair. So justice from God to persons, it's, much, it's, much, it's a much greater thing than fairness. And so in the secular mind, everything is geared toward fairness or some kind of like some, some scale, some cosmic scale of justice, which is really, if you really think about it, just a fancy word for fairness. From a secular point of view, and this is what, what so many people think when they mean when they say equality. And I think you notice that in our culture, equality often means some kind of like equal results. 
And is that really, is that really the best thing? Wouldn't it be better if people were treated as persons in all their complexity? So that's the first point I want to get at. And that's going to lead us into today's message, okay? So three parts. Part one, justice as the love and blessing of persons. Well, that's not it. That's last week, sorry. <laughs> all right? God's justice seeks the wholeness of even the most vulnerable persons. That's why the Bible doesn't focus on some kind of rule. When God says, here's my justice, you know what he does? He makes us look at persons. See the persons. See the persons. Don't just see a group. These are oppressed groups. These are this powerful groups. That's kind of like how our culture talks today. All right? No, that's a kind of secular view. And then let's make it fair, equality. So God's justice seeks the wholeness of even the most vulnerable persons, part one. Part two, fathers, the linchpin of culture, society, and identity. It's fathers are incredibly important. And so fatherlessness are, is among the most, they're among the most vulnerable people. People who are fatherless. And so we're supposed to look at certain kinds of people. And that's an acid test of whether we have justice in our society. Okay? Fathers, the linchpin of culture, society, and identity. And then part three, I'm going to close by giving us the good news that God is the father to the fatherless. God is the father to the fatherless. Okay? I want to start by talking about, you know, Already kind of as I'm saying this, but I want to just make this very, very explicit. Our culture thinks that human beings can just get together and just use human wisdom and minds to decide what is justice. All our smartest people, we go, they, they get PhDs, and then, you know, the, 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 the best of the PhDs, they, they write up essays, and then they write up books which become famous in the most important journals, and then they get the greatest reputations. And then they go to our finest universities. And they get paid the best money. And we call them our wisest heads. But if they assume, and it's always an assumption. And this assumption is that human beings must figure out justice wholly by human presuppositions. That only man can decide what is justice by man. Let me tell you, that's a big, big problem. Already from the get-go, from the first fundamental presupposition of foundation, they're already off to the wrong track. So I really don't care how smart they are or how wise they are. And some of them, of course, are incredibly brilliant. If you start off in the right place, if you want to take a trip, let's say you're going to go from San Jose and you want to go to New York. Okay? You go to San Jose and you want to go to New York. And you get on the wrong plane and you're going west into the Pacific Ocean. You could be the smartest person in San Jose and you're in the wrong direction just because your fundamental presupposition and beginning point, you're completely in the wrong direction. And so the first point I want to say about justice is if you really want to seek true justice, you have to have a theological vision of the human person. Let me say this. We must have a theological vision of the human person. And the human person, because justice is all about what is the human being, and you must get down to the most fundamental unit of the human being, that is the human person. 
Now, let me say a couple other things. Um, we all think we know what human beings are because we just experience them all the time. I meet a person, you meet a person. Some are tall, some are short, some are bald. <laughs> some have nice hair, some have no hair, okay? You know, some women have glorious hair and some women didn't care too much, etc. You meet people, you start talking to them, it's like, this person talks a lot and he has a really good vocabulary. This person talks too much and I wish they would stop talking, <laughs> okay? You know, you, you just have all these experiences about people, right? So we think we know what people are like. But do you have the right fundamental definition of the individual human person? Do you know what a person is? I want to ask you that. We have experiences of persons, but do you have a right definition of the person? And if your definition of the person is wholly secular, only from man, I would like to posit to you, it's probably inadequate. So let me just give you examples. There were a set of people in the 20th centuries, they're from Europe, and they were German. And they had an idea of human persons. And they said that if you had certain bloodlines, and they had a name for those bloodlines called the Aryan race, you were a full person. But if you had certain bloodlines, and they were from the Jews, then you were less than a person. You could meet a person, so there's a famous movie that came out in the 1990s called Schindler's List. You ever see this movie? If you're young and you've never seen this movie, you absolutely must see this movie. And I'm just offering this to you because in this movie, what happens is there's a Nazi soldier. He's from the elite of the German class. And then there's a woman who is Jewish and she's beautiful. And you know what? He falls in love with her. He falls in love with her. Because his experience of her is that she's a full person. But his idea of her is that she is less than a person. She's less than a person. And so he, his, his emotions are that he's falling in love with her, but his mind is telling him the ideology of the notion of what kind of person she is, which is that she's less than a person. And then at one point, he begins to punch her because that is what the secular wisdom of his time has told him about who she is as a person. See? I'm just giving you a particularly pointed example. Of course, there's all kinds of examples. Every culture has a deficient vision of the human person. The person, we just think, is an individual of the human being. But do you understand what, what the, the worth of each individual person is? So I'm starting this way. So just some other examples. Okay, I, I, I don't want to... Everybody wants to hit on the Nazis. Okay, I, I'm of Korean descent. Let's, let, me, let me give you something that's from my you know, motherland's history. So in, in, the, in Korean history, they had two groups of people. They called them... You know, if, if your Korean's better than mine, so just forgive me, okay? Here, they called them the Yangbans and the Sangnoms. And the Yangbans were the upper class. And the Sangnoms were the lower class. And the Sangnoms, you know, can't ever marry into the upper class, into the Yangban. And if you did, 
If you try to marry somebody, let's say you fell in love with someone who's on the Sangnam class, you would be ostracized from your rich upper class family. Even though you had all the privileges and all the oftentimes they, they, all, they never had any literacy. They never went to school. They were poor. They were less educated. And in, in every way, in every society, they felt like the experience, again, you can't just judge this from experience. So everything was stacked in the society that those people would have less. They would be seen as having less. And then the ideology, the wise people, see the smartest people, I told you, if you start off going in the wrong direction. So at the, where they start off in the wrong direction, says these unknown people, I guess they're persons, maybe they're not even persons. That's another example. I'll give you another example, common to today. Um, uh, you know, there's, there are people today, I don't know if you know this, I, I often read this kind of, there's a, there's a profound moral fight going on. And it's written in important journals. And there's arguments about whether an unborn fetus is a person. Let me ask you that question. Is an unborn fetus a person? What is a person? Do you have to be smart? Wait a second. If you can't really talk very well, is, um, is, um, is somebody who can't talk, what if their intelligence level is low? Are they a person? So you start asking these questions. So, you know, you have this being that we can see through the ultrasound that doesn't look like a person that we experience, are they a person? And if they're not a person, do they have rights as persons? And thus, they could be aborted. <laughs> That's an important question. Profoundly important question. See? Secular wisdom, can you just decide? Um, God's vision is this. Everybody's human. You know, you're made of the stuff that's human. You're made of the stuff that you're made in the image of God. Even if you're weak. Even if you're vulnerable. You're made in the image of God. You know what makes you human? That you're like God. <laughs> and if you're like God, you must be respected and treated with justice, which is another way of saying the way God looks at a person with respect and cherishing with love. No matter how weak or vulnerable or how decrepit they seem to us. Now with all that said, now let's read the text. Okay? Let's read the text. I'm just going to read from verse 17 of Deuteronomy well, that is the text, actually. It's actually in context, but verse 17. For Yahweh your God, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So it does not matter who pays. And it does not matter how great your people are. It doesn't matter if you're in the Sangnam class or if you're in the upper class of Germany. You know, if you're Hindu and you're, you're in the upper caste, the Hindus believe that there's actually a set of people that are below caste. They're called the untouchables. They're, like, they're below human, 
They're basically not persons. It's crazy. From a Christian theological, biblical point of view, God says you're made in his image, regardless of how weak. Verse 18, here we go. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. And so this is where I, I, I was getting to last week. The last couple of weeks. Persons. And who are all these people? The fatherless, the widow, the sojourner is the outsider, the minority. That's called the fatherless, the widow, the outsider minority. They're the weakest, most vulnerable. They're all the ones that when human beings through their secular wisdom, through our experience, will look at and immediately just go, they're maybe they're less than people. And they will not be treated as persons. And God's saying, he executes justice for them. So then he goes, verse 19. Or loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Verse 19, love the sojourner, love the outsider. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You were once minorities, crushed and oppressed and treated like the Sangnam. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to them. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Great things, restorative justice. Terrifying things, retributive justice. If you violate and oppress and hurt persons that he executes justice for, oh, he'll get you. <laughs> That's a promise. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't feel like he's going to get us. We're going to live our life. And I'm not trying to scare the heck out of you, but yeah, it should scare you. And, you know, we're just, today, our inner consciousness is so filled with secular pride and a kind of atheism. We just think we're comfortable, we're rich, all that scary stuff in the Bible, isn't that just retrograde? I'm sorry. That's just wrong. <laughs> so one of the first things I really want to just say here is we need a theological understanding in order to have real justice. Now the second thing I want to say is all human beings, you know where you first, and it's, I know that I'm reviewing here, but this is really important. From God's point of view, you know where personhood comes from? Relationships. Your personhood, your identity, fundamental your personhood and your identity is in relationships. And notice all three languages. Fatherless. It's about a relationship. Someone's missing. The widow. It's about a relationship. Something's missing. The sojourner. It's about relationships. Relationships define and shape who we are. And let me say this to you. All human beings, to the bottom, bottom, bottom of who you are, you're built on relationship. What are you going to do? Pile a bunch of money together? Like, if the secular mind thinks if we pile a bunch of money together and you have a lot of money, you can build your identity on that. That's crazy talk. Just tr let's try this. Go pile a bunch of money together from Mexico. Okay, go to Mexico. 
And why don't you trade in like $100,000 worth of American money for Mexican money and put it all out, all the pesos and everything, and then like put it up in your room. It looked look really, really impressive. And then say, see how much I got? I'm somebody. And then invite somebody over. What will happen? They'll look at that and go, are you crazy? <laughs> Why? It's all about relationship. Because they're like, well, that's Mexican money. And we're not Mexicans. And this is America. And, you know, we're citizens of America. And that money, sorry, it doesn't mean anything here. So, again, even that's a relationship. Even something that seems like money, economy, it's built on relationship. And so your identity, everything to the bottom of your soul, it's built on who are you from? Who are you from? And so what God cares about justice, he isn't first interested in how much, who's got money or who's got power and so forth. There's lots of issues just in this verse about how God executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, and the outsider. He's clearly interested in issues of power. But that's not really what he says, really. What he says, he's first telling you about persons and who they are in their deepest relationships. And um, I want you to think about that. And just notice all these people, if you are the most vulnerable in who you are in your relationship, you're the most vulnerable in society. And so what God calls for and demands justice, you know what he's talking about? See the person and who they are in their relationship. If you see them and who they are in their relationship, you're seeing the person. Okay, let me say that again. If you're seeing who someone is in their relationship, you're seeing the person. Let me just even put this a little more bluntly so you can't miss it. You go to work. The person has a good education. At least they seem like they have a good education. And they dress nicely. But you don't know if they're depressed because they hate their dad. You don't know. They're really good at their job. And they went to a good college. And they're really smart but you don't know how much stress that that took. Do you know the person? Do you know the person? But if you know something about their family and their father and their mother, you're getting close. <laughs> you're getting closer to understanding who they are as a person. So that's why this first thing we're talking about, God's wisdom, God's justice, you have to start thinking about the father. I know it sounds strange. So strange from an American point of view. We're such individ radical individualists. We always think about power and money and status. But how about if we think about fathers? Okay? I want to challenge you to think from the Bible's point of view, from fathers. Let's go to that. Part two. Fathers, the linchpin of culture, society, and identity. And I want to um, just start by reading to you a little portion out of a book I started. And I, I won't get too much into this book. It's called The Next Evangelicalism, written by Sung Chan Ra. And Sung Chan Ra is a Korean-American pastor. He's a professor at a seminary. And I just started this book. It's a pretty good book so far. And he's really, it's a critique of Western capti cultural captivity in, 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 in um, Western churches. But 
Relevant to today, what was really interesting is here is a guy, he's actually rather, he's really smart, good pastor, planted churches, professor, but he was fatherless. It's really interesting. Just listen. The importance of fatherlessness. Now, I just want you to hear this. Some of you are going like, what about motherless? It sounds sexist. Just, just, just listen, okay? This is the, this is, in modern, we're not talking about ancient world. We're not talking about another country, third world country, anything like this. We're talking about America. A person who's relatively been successful in America, but just listen to what it must have been like for him. Listen. So he, he's just a few years older than me. He was born in Korea. And then he immigrated to the U.S. when he was six years old, and he grew up in Baltimore. But he put it coupled with, and maybe as a result of the trauma of immigration were the numerous struggles and tensions within my family. The main source of stress came from my father's abandonment of our family when I was in elementary school. Now, saddled with the responsibility of caring for four children in a foreign land, my mom's limited English entailed employment options. No dad? You got a wife, you got no, no husband. She's like a widow. And they're outsiders. All three categories. You see it? She ended up working two different jobs at the same time. A cook in an inner city carryout during the day and a night shift nurse's aide in a senior citizen's home. She would work 20 hours a day, six days a week. My father's departure from our family meant... And here's the part I want you to hear. I lost both father and mother in one shot. So he had a mom, but he didn't get his mom. Because there was no dad. In the midst of all these difficulties, it was an authentic Christian community that provided support and served as a lifesaver to our family. It was the church that gave our family stability and direction. It was an evangelical faith that transformed me from bitterness and defeat to an unwavering hope. To an unwavering hope. I shudder to think who I would be without my evangelical faith. So he got the father of the fatherless through church. He got the hope of the father to the fathers. He was fatherless, but he got a better father, the most important father, God. You know what he got? He got justice. But to be fatherless, and that's in a country that's not so oppressive, that's not so, that's not so harsh, So I just wanted to start there to just give you a feel for why fathers are so important. Now, some of you are going like fathers. What? If you don't have a father, you often don't get much of your mother. That's the tragedy of it. Now, I want to just, let's, let's just step some other things. Let's just imagine you're not in America in the 21st century. This book was not written in America in the 21st century. It was written in all times and all places. 
And when Deuteronomy 10 was written, when Psalm chapter 68 was written and God is described, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. Sung Chan Ra got a home. I, 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 I dare to say that he was, church was probably more his home than his home. And I met lots of kids. You know why they love church? They're just like that. No dad, or sometimes they do have a dad, but he's a terrible dad. An absent dad, abusive dad, an angry dad, stressed out dad. And so church is more a home than home. And God is their unwavering hope. But just imagine this. But this, what if you're in a society where your father is the primary source of income and his skill is your future? <laughs> School only goes up to like maybe 10 or 11 or 12 years old. That's the way it was in Jewish culture. At age 12, you become bar mitzvah, son of the law, and then you become a man. So you're trained till the age of 12, and then you become a man, and you know what you do after your bar mitzvah? You do what your dad does. So that's Jewish culture. Most of other, lots of other cultures are similar. So boys grow up, there's a rite of passage, but ma mainly, if your father's a shepherd, you become a shepherd. If your father, you know, was literate, and your family had all kinds of education, you learned that. And if you want to, I don't know, be an MMA fighter or something like that, they're going to look at you like, are you crazy? We're scholars. This is what we do. Go to school. So you wonder why so many Asians, you know, it's like so many Asians go like, the way you, you climbed the ladder was you did it through school. It was a Confucianistic system. That's the way the Chinese did it. And then the Koreans picked that up and then the Japanese picked that up. So you wonder why, you know, if you want to be in the NBA, <laughs> Well, your parents go, no, this is how our family does it. Because, what do you mean? That's how the whole world has done it. For umpteen generations. Now, let me ask you this question. What if you don't have a dad? What if he leaves? Then what do you do? First, he leaves. Now, your mom is going to beg, or she's going to have to be a servant, you ever, you ever watch that? Um, I know you ever know um, Les Mis. There was a woman. She got pregnant. The man left. Fantine, that's her name. And she had a daughter. And then she had to sell everything. And then she became a prostitute. And so her daughter not only didn't have a father, didn't have a mother. It's completely normal in the world completely normal. And in America, we have this thing called universal education, public school. You know who invented that? Christians. <laughs> you know why Christians invented that? Because of passages like this. So the kids who don't have dads, they get an education. They'd have a pathway. If we were in most, a more just society, 
the schools would have to be good for even the poor and the fatherless, not only for the rich. If you ask me, one of the things that makes a really, really unjust society is we do have public education. That's really, really good. But the quality of the education is so weak if you're poor. <laughs> and I think from God's point of view, it's unjust. So if you're fatherless, you don't even get the good schools. But if you, in the old, in lots of other cultures, there are no schools. But let's just say you can still go to school. Who's going to get you your books? When I, I remember when we moved to the United States, I went to school with nothing. Where Our family was poor. My dad didn't know that you're supposed to like, I don't know, like, I, I think in Korea, you would, you would send your kid with like notebooks and all this other stuff. But I went to school with nothing. You know what? My school gave me everything. Pens, paper, everything. I thought it was free. It wasn't free. It's a more just society. And then it wasn't until I got to junior high and went to private school, all of a sudden we had to like shop for this stuff. It was weird. It was like, uh, we, I came home from school the first day and said, Mom, Dad, we have to go get supplies. They were like, oh, really? Okay. It was interesting. But what if I didn't have a dad to go buy me supplies? Is there any an idea? The fatherless. So, I know our society, you know, it is a very, very good thing that people without fathers have a much better shot in our society. But it's really interesting. What has led to is this very, very unrealistic way of thinking that somehow we can dispense with fathers. It's a huge mistake. And um, all around the world, people are paying for it. You know, every, every society is kind of going down this route. I don't know if you know this. I remember um, reading about how um, in some of the really, really like lawless places in Africa, this was like in the 90s and then in 2000, what happened is one tribe would raid another tribe and then murder them. And then all the boys would become fatherless. And then the boys would be conscripted into the army of the other tribe and then would be made to go and then raid other people and rape and murder and steal for them. So the boys would become rapists. They would be taught to be rapists and murderers and thieves. So that this tribe could become more powerful. That's what happens in fatherlessness. It's a particularly horrible example. And I just want to challenge you. Watch some movies or hear some stories from people around the world. You ever watch Slumdog Millionaire? You should watch that movie. Look at all those kids. No dad. Just ask yourself, no dad. Just think about these verses. No dad. The linchpin of society are his dads. And it has been said that the great gift of the Bible to civilization is that it trains men to be dads. <laughs> That they'll be faithful to their wives. They will be, not be violent or be drunkards. And they will love and protect their children and encourage them and offer their best self to their children. That's fatherhood. And every society where men do that, the children will thrive. And you know what happens there? That's called justice from the Bible. And every society where they will not do that, 
will have wickedness and oppression. And we'll have all these fatherless, broken people who go off into the world utterly vulnerable. And our society, that's where we're going. We make people fatherless. And some of you in our church, you know this feeling firsthand. I want to close by offering you the gift of the gospel. God gives himself a description in Psalm 68. Verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Verse 5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And I want to close by saying this. Did any of you ever have a bad father? Uh, if you have like a C minus dad, I mean, he, he, he was kind of a stressed out dad. Wasn't, he was emotionally kind of distant. Never hung out with you very much. Wasn't very understanding. Sometimes kind of mean and kind of tough on you. Somewhere between C minus and C plus. But he didn't cheat on your mom. Wasn't a drunk. You should be thankful. Okay? You should be thankful. That you at least had a C minus dad. But a lot of us, it's, it's painful. If you had worse than that, and unfortunately a lot of people do. Did you ever have a bad dad? He left you vulnerable to the dangers of the wilderness of the world. Or you were abandoned by your father. Maybe economically, emotionally, relationally. So you know something about fatherlessness. If that is not you, go home and praise Jesus. Go home and praise Jesus. And understand, I'm just a good person. I know how to live my life. No, you were blessed. You were loved. You were given justice. And now go out into the world and let's live inside of justice. God's justice. And when you meet people, think about, are they fatherless or not? Did they have a good dad or not? Ask that, think about that. I, one of the things I do as a pastor, I, you know, you, you can't ask like certain questions in America. It seems a little too rude. Did you grow up going to church? Do you believe in Jesus? You can't ask that question, right? So you just, I say something like, you know, I, I don't say like, mm, did your parents believe in Jesus? That's like a less rude question. And then, then that just kind of puts it up and then they can tell you what they, whatever they want to tell you. And then sometimes they just start telling you my dad left us. I'm like, oh, you're learning a lot. And start thinking, it doesn't matter. Some, they, maybe they gritted their way and they made it through something sense, you know, like functional in our society. But they were fatherless. And I assure you, they've experienced tremendous struggles and pain. And of course, the ones that didn't make it, there's lots of them. They're just all throughout our society. They're sleeping on the streets. They're in our prisons. They're in our mental health systems. They're quietly dying in our schools. Thinking hateful thoughts themselves. Everybody thought I'm nothing because I couldn't do anything. Nobody invested in me, so I couldn't do anything. Everybody thought I was dumb. I think I'm dumb. The fatherless. And I want to say this to you. 
Is that you? I'm going to especially speak the good news to you today. Maybe all of your life you thought you were on your own and had to face the world and could only depend on yourself. You're like an orphan inside. You are like the fatherless. You're the fatherless. Even if you had a dad, maybe he was a bad dad. So you felt fatherless. And you know something in what it feels like to be weak and insecure and fearful, suspicious, cynical, angry in the world. In fact, those are all the normal things inside of you. Insecure, fearful, suspicious, cynical, angry, distrustful. But all the ways that your orphan heart sinned and was full of fear, cynicism, distrust. And in your life, you broke relationships and maybe you were even pushing away God. The father sent the son so he could put to death your orphaned heart. And all the ways that the world pushed you around and said you were nothing, excluded you, made you feel without worth or respect or acceptance in the world, all that, if you had received the Son, was washed away by the blood of the Son too. Your sins and your orphaned heart was washed away by the blood of the Son. And all your, the curses of being an orphan in the world was washed away by the sonship obedience of the Son. His sonship fully received his father's love. We could not receive it. So Jesus received his love for us, for you. It was expressed in the total trust of the father to let all the curse of your fatherlessness fall upon him so that he could withstand all its curse and shame and pain and rejection so that when he died, all your exclusions from the world could become nothing and could die so that you wouldn't have to care what the world and those around you said about you and thought about you. The final verdict and identity upon you would be the sonship of the Son from the Father. And it could be conferred upon you by grace. His sonship would give you the Father and the Father's love that you have always been seeking and asking and wanting. You didn't know. The security, the power, the comfort, the hope, the future. You never got from your earthly father. But he'd give you better than fair. Real justice. Father, in fact, better than justice. Fatherly love. Justice is intended to give this. And here's what I want to close. This is the beginning of true justice in the world. Those who exploit the weak and vulnerable and fatherless will get the wrath of the father of the fatherless. Even if they themselves were sinful, because they themselves were fatherless. You know who are the most sinful against the fathers? Often those who are fatherless. It's like a cycle of vengeance. But instead, the Father's restorative justice is offered by grace through His Son to those who are willing to become whole and offer a bigger justice and truth to the world through the gift of sonship they receive from Jesus the Son. You will get His name. You'll get His worth. 
All the worthiness of the Son will be given to you. It can never be taken away from you. The only trick is, can you believe it? (laughs) And if you could believe it, then ask the Son, come into my life and give me the Father. You're starting the great adventure of true justice and real life. Inside of you will be the start of real justice. Justice will come into you and go out into the world to all the fatherless and weak and vulnerable from the father of the fatherless. Let's pray. Lord, in a very fatherless and lost, angry, cynical, distrusting a people people that don't even know how to treat other persons like real persons. The real personhood first comes from the personness, the divine person. You first gave us a personhood that is made in the image of God, made in the personhood of God. And then you did that so that you could be, not just we could be citizens, we could be sons of the Most High have you as our dad. So into this weak and lonely, solitary hearts, help us to come into your presence, into your church, into your family. And just like Sung Chan Ra did many years ago, we'd find a home. We'd find your dad. And in you, an unwavering hope that takes us out into unjust and dark world regularly beating down and running people down as less persons. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.